Thank you so much for joining us online. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And today's passage comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Hear now God's word for us. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Let's pray. I want to invite you in this moment, God, to work in a unique way in our hearts as we navigate your scripture. This unique moment in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you come and work? If you're watching this video right now, in this particular moment, now I want to invite you to be praying for yourself. Take a moment and pray that the Holy Spirit would speak uniquely to you in this passage about prayer. Now I want to invite you to pray and take a moment to pray for the person either sitting next to you or the people in the units around you in your apartment complex or to friends that God or family that God is bringing to mind right now that you would be able to live this truth out in their presence and in those relationships. Do that now. God, we believe that you hear our prayers. We believe that you are over time and space, and yet you have entered time and space to show us what it means to live in your world. And so guide us now. Continue to speak uniquely to us and also speak through us that we might honor your good name. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. Now, Nothing can turn me off to like a movie or a play or a book, much like a one-dimensional character. I mean, even in fiction, I want to feel like I'm engaging reality. I don't want a cheap or shallow character. And real people are never one-dimensional. Real people, they struggle, they enter battles, or they even feel weaknesses. This is just a part of what it means to be human. And when we come to Luke's gospel account, We've seen how, so far, how Jesus is the promised king and he's ushering in a new kingdom. We've seen how he's tangled with his enemies. We've seen how he's rescued and healed the sick and the oppressed. We've seen how he's spoken truth to power prophetically. We've seen how he shapes a different, other-centered culture. I mean, there's so much, frankly, too much for us to go into right now. But here, in today's passage, we see another dimension of Jesus. He's not just a king with power. He's a fellow human being in pain, in agony, in deep wrestling, praying so intensely that he actually perspires drops of blood. And by, you know, as, as a side note, 
uh, medical professionals have actually proven that this is possible on, when someone is underneath deep, extraordinary stress. And so here before we go to the cross, feeling the weight of all that is before him, we can really resonate with Jesus in this unique episode. His humanity, it feels more palpable in these moments. And you, you know, even as I read this moment in this particular passage, it made me wonder if the weight of the cross has been weighing on his soul throughout his whole life, kind of this quiet ache as each day moved him closer to the cross. And now from where he is kneeling and praying, he can see where he's going to be crucified. Jesus, from our perspective in this passage, he feels less high and lifted up and more in the trenches of life. He feels, in many ways, a stone's throw away from our experience. And so it's in moments like these that we find some of the most essential life that we are called, some essential guidance to the life we're called to lead. And what's on Jesus' mind at this particular point in his life? We see that Jesus calls his followers to pray. But it's a different kind of prayer. It's not like the prayers, um, quite honestly, that we do every day, maybe around mealtime or those quick um, help cries off the cusp. Honestly, the way Jesus commands us to pray here on the cusp of moments of surprise and pain, difficulty and confusion, it's left a lot of people wondering as to what exactly Jesus meant. Now, in both chapter 22, verse 40 and verse 46, we hear Jesus give a command to his followers. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This bookends Jesus' own bloody prayer of crying for relief. And why? Why that command? Why is it that in the moment of Jesus' greatest agony before the cross, this particular command is his charge to his apostles? I mean, what is he saying and what are we to expect when we pray this type of prayer? Well, I think herein lies one of the most astounding insights to life with Jesus and especially to life with Jesus in prayer if we have the eyes to see and the willingness to pray. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Luke chapter 22, beginning there in verse 39. We find that the sun is beginning to go down and Jesus, he leads his disciples actually to a familiar place. This isn't the first time they go over to the Mount of Olives. What we come to see is that, and this was earlier in chapter 21, actually, that at the end of each day, after Jesus is done teaching the people on the Temple Mount, this is where they go to spend their time, the Mount of Olives, to spend time praying, to recount Jesus' brilliance, to ask questions around some of his teaching, to maybe dream of what is to come, to hope for what is to come. The, the, the Mount of Olives is a small mountain range that separates the city of Jerusalem from the desert that surrounds her. And at the base of this range is the Garden of Gethsemane. They spent many a nights there asking all these questions and in praying. But, but tonight was a little bit different, this particular night when they gathered together. And Jesus, he asks those who are closest to him to be praying one thing. Pray that you may not enter into temptation or pray that you don't enter a state of temptation. Now, the original word translated temptation in English here, it's kind of complex. It can either mean testing and trial or it can mean temptation. Um, it has both of those meanings and the context gives us a clue as to what an exact meaning means in that particular verse. Now, what? let me just ask you this. What images pop into our minds when we think about temptation? You probably think about a tempter. You probably think of someone spurring us on to embrace 
evil, right? Trying to get us to trip up. And so the question that you might find yourself asking when you read this command is, okay, in this particular case, is Jesus asking us to pray that you don't give in to the evil one encouraging you to do evil? Is that what he's asking? Well, I actually think that Luke, throughout his gospel account, gives us some breadcrumbs to clarify exactly what Jesus is commanding here. And we're going to move our way back through the gospel account at a couple other instances where this word is used to have clarity as to what it means here. And the first place we're going to land is in Luke chapter 11, verse 4. This is where Jesus is teaching his paradigmatic prayer. Um, and the instance, uh, and in this instance, it ends with, in verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. That's how, in Luke's gospel account, how he ends the Lord's prayer. Now, translating this as temptation in Luke 11.4 is a little rough and for a couple reasons. Partly because, number one, this is a prayer to God the Father. This isn't a prayer in light of the evil one. In James chapter 1, it's as if... You know, James is answering this pushback to praying Jesus' prayer when in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But in the broader range, this word, it can mean, like I said, something more akin to testing or trial. So is that the emphasis in chapter 11, verse 4? That leads us to our next passage that makes this a little more explicit. If you go to Luke chapter 8, verse 13, we're moving our way back. Jesus explains why he teaches in these story riddles called parables. And he describes one group who actually receives these parables for a little while, his teaching for a little while, and trusts him for a little while, but fades away. Look with me, Luke 8, verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. That's the same word, but here the English translators translate it as testing. Um, and of course, we think of testing slightly different than temptation. A test is where you put something or someone under pressure. You allow them to experience pressure to see what they are made of, what's at their core, or as in Jesus is explaining here, as to whether or not their belief is genuine or not. It's being tested. Okay, one more example. Hang with me. This is important as we seek to understand the text. Luke chapter 4, verse 13. This is where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the Satan, right? The adversary to God's purposes. Chapter 4, verse 13, we read, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, nearly every commentator points to how that, that opportune time for the evil one is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Back in Luke chapter 4, Luke is giving us a little bit of a taste as to what is to come all the way in this final garden where the new and better Adam, who is Jesus, is to finally face the final temptation and the serpent and to come out victorious. This is Jesus' final time of testing, the final battleground before the cross. And the old battles of the wilderness come back to the foreground with the heightened intensity. So, what were some of those old battles back in Luke chapter 4? What is the Satan's tactic? It's clear back in Luke 4, three tests of Jesus that get at the core of what's happening. See, Jesus, he'd fasted for 40 days, and the Satan came whispering things like, if God is your father, why are you starving out here? Just make these stones bread already. 
second thing he might be whispering. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world now. Just turn your back on your father and join me. You don't have to be engaged in this messy cross business. And then, of course, number three, if you're really God's son, jump off the temple. Have the angels save you. You don't need to suffer as the king. And now, if we jump once again back up to Luke 22, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's like all these questions around the goodness of God are back at the foreground for the Son of God. Wrestling over the Father's will. Father, if you'd have this cup pass from me. This intimacy, this wrestling over his own trajectory. So what's his trial all about? He feels the tension to pull or the pull to abandon the humble plan of God. For the Christ, the personal, spiritual, psychological, cosmic suffering of the cross for us and for the world. He, he feels like he, wrestling through the plan that God the Father has for God the Son and wondering, is there any other way, any other foreseeable way? And simultaneously, he begins to feel the pressure to abandon his trust in God as a good father. And here's what we discover in Jesus' command. When he feels this pressure, when he feels the pull in these moments, and he commands his disciples to pray that you don't enter into temptation. He says it twice in such a close proximity. Here's what we learn. For starters, trials are normal. They're normal. Jesus walks the way every follower of Jesus must walk. We all have seasons. We all have times. We all have moments when it seems like God can no longer be trusted. We all have those moments in the face of uncertainty and fear and loss where we can wonder, you know, is God actually good? Or maybe you get so far to say, does God actually exist at all? Because if he does exist, he must be good. So if this is happening, does God even exist? Maybe you're in one of those seasons right now and just being able to start this video today to watch and participate in this worship service online that took everything out of you just to be able to get into the spot to watch and engage. Well, I want you to know this should, if you feel that way, that, that shouldn't cause a sense of shame. We need to realize trials are normal in a broken world for followers of Jesus and unbelievers alike. You're not alone. And you shouldn't feel ashamed that at times you feel that way. Actually, someone else who needed to learn this lesson was Peter. You know, the leading apostle himself. The apostle Peter, who had witnessed some of this go down in the garden before he fell asleep, of course, um, no doubt remembers this time when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter uses the same word we find here in our text, this language of test. Jesus went through trials. We will too. It's difficult to follow Jesus. It's easier than going on life without Jesus, but it's still difficult. And this is partly why Jesus tells them to ask God to take them another way. Trials are normal. They're hard. They test us to our core. And, and our God is not trying to destroy us. He's not evil. He's helping us to see ourselves. He's helping us to see Him. He wants us to grow. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming. And anyone who's eager to jump right in has no understanding of true trials. So where do we go from here today? Um, trials are normal, but they don't have to crush us, which is why Jesus invites us to confront trials with 
prayer. Confront trials with prayer. When my kids are um, overwhelmed, when they're nervous or scared, I try everything I can, right, to be there and to, to bring wholeness back into their life. I want to be able to take their fear away by saying things like, Daddy's here. It's okay. Or I want to calm their nerves by inviting them to take a deep breath and a long exhale. Or if they feel overwhelmed, I, I like saying, hey, we're going to walk through this together. It's going to be okay. We're going to take it one step at a time. And that's not all bad. Actually, that can be really good. But often when my kids experience the trials of their life or even some obstacles and difficulties in their own little growing faith, one of the most important things we can do is stop and pray together. Um, Because what they need, and frankly what we all need, yes, we need people to speak into us and speak alongside of us. Here the disciples are praying together. Don't miss that before they fall asleep. Um, So we don't need to get away from it all most of the time. Most of the time, we need others with us. Even Jesus didn't try to do this alone. He invited people to be praying for him and with him around that time. But in the midst of trials and tests, we need God's voice to be central in our prayers. You see, when my kids are really scared, um, especially at bedtime when the lights go out, of course, one of the most important things that helps them stay in their beds, which is priority number one as parents, and then number two, go to sleep, is to quote Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then we pray that God would help us to actually rest in his promises to those that are his. You see, Jesus does this exact tactic when he's confronted with Satan's attack back in Luke chapter 4. Jesus confronted with tri- confronted trials with prayer soaked in Scripture. Now, he's not just proof texting, like snagging a text and making it mean what he wants it to mean. Rather, the Scriptures for him were deeply relational. They were always anchored in the intimacy he had with his Father. For example, when the Satan invites him to jump off the temple, right, and encourage the angels to catch him, what does he respond with? But with Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, he's saying, my father doesn't have to prove himself to me. There is no test of mine. He must pass for me to trust him. I will trust him, period. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the question almost feels raised again. Is suffering on the cross and death the only way, Father? In many ways, he prays scripture, his own edict to us. Father, keep me from this trial if at all possible. Have this cup pass from me, please, Father. But in all this, we can easily begin to think that this confrontation of trials in our life is merely pietistic. That means you can think, you know, if I just say the right words in a time of prayer, that's going to be my avenue of deliverance. Well, actually, it's more than that. And by, by what do I mean? Jesus isn't just advocating for long, intense prayer meetings. As we see even in the text, that'll put people to sleep eventually. Um, Sorry, terrible joke, but you get it. Actually, what we come to see is something else is included in this whole posture of prayer. Now, a lot of people, when they talk about prayer, they talk about different acronyms to help teach us how to pray. Some folks talk about acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Some may even add lament in that category and call it lax. Um, But actually, laxy. (laughs) 
captures it. And you're like, Gabe, okay, I get it. You added a Y. This is getting a little ridiculous. I think we need to find a new word. You're probably right, but hang with me. Um, notice what happens in the garden in verses 45 through 46 of chapter 22. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus does something here that's crucial for you and for me. He yields. He yields. He prays and nothing seems to be changing, so he yields to the current path that is already laid before him. You need to not only be able to say in your life and mine, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, we can come with questions. Yes, we come with pleas. But simultaneously, we must end with yielding to God in our prayer as to whatever is coming down the pike for us. You need to get up and yield to what God has laid before you and trust and get on with God's calling in your life. You can't stay in your prayer closet forever. And listen, the activists among us may not like that Jesus has us confront trials with prayer, but the pietists among us may not like that Jesus doesn't stay in the prayer closet, but then he walks through the trial confronting the lies ahead of him in the world. It starts off pretty churchy, but then it ends in the streets. It always moves out into the surrounding context. Confronting trials with prayer is surrendering to God's voice and walking back into the fire. So let me ask you, you know, as you're watching this and engaging this text, what trial do you need to confront with prayer? What trial do you need to confront with prayer? Where do you feel your belief in God's goodness being tested? Where are you beginning to doubt God as a good father? What dream has been left unfulfilled? What desire left unmet? What hope still longing? You know, this past week I learned that an older brother in Christ, his brain tumor and cancer had continued to grow despite treatment. And it came to the point that they moved from active treatment to hospice. And there are a lot of ways you can respond to that. I mean, it's a true trial, a test of the soul. But as I met with them in their living room and we prayed, we held on to God's promises. We asked for his presence. We did ask for healing. And then simultaneously, we surrendered to whatever God had. And in the words of his wife, she said, I could be sitting here crying all day, but I have to get up and keep going. I have to trust God has us to the end. That right there is confronting trial with prayer. These two are followers of Jesus through Gethsemane, not around it. And it's powerful and it's absolutely pal palpable when you're in the presence of those moments. And see, Trials are normal, and, and we, we don't have to be crushed by them. We can actually confront our trials with prayer. And simultaneously, when we do confront trials Jesus' way, deliverance is available in his prayer. Now, what do I mean to th by that? To be clear, not deliverance from pain, always or even mostly from pain, but through pain. We're not immune from deep trials and hardship or loss or grief. I mean, such is the way of the cross with Jesus. And yet deliverance is still available in his prayer in really two particular ways. Because when Jesus made it through his trial, he ensured our deliverance was one. When he yields to his death on the cross, it's not just a means to show us how much he loves us. It's not just a means to prove his obedience 
to the Father, but it's the very means by which all of us in all of our agonies and pains and trials will be delivered once and for all. He's gone ahead of us and he's accomplished what we could not do in our own strength. And then number two, it will not end the trials of today, but it will ensure our deliverance one day. Because after his death, he sends his spirit to empower us in the face of trials. God with us becomes God actually in us and among us in a unique way, in a very democratizing global way. God's spirit empowering us to continue the way of the cross today. I mean, can you imagine all of that being accomplished by Jesus passing the test and trial? Imagine the weight that is on the Son of God in that moment. No wonder he's sweating blood. It's why an angel had to come and support him in the midst of this battle. Every trial, every failure, every moment we're ready to give up on God, when we struggle to stay awake and pray, Jesus takes on himself in this moment in the garden. And all because he confronted trials with prayer. And so if you're not facing a trial today, praise God. And pray that God continues to lead you another way just like Jesus invites us to pray here. But if you are in a trial, if you're in the midst of a heavy test, whatever agony you face, be encouraged because he's gone ahead. You may feel this human forsakenness, but remember that God has himself has felt God-forsakenness. You may feel human trials of evil, but remember that he has felt every onslaught of evil. You may feel true and bitter loneliness, but he has felt utter abandonment. And he did all that to help us remember that God is indeed good, that he can be trusted if we indeed yield to him. You see, he sweat blood so that we don't have to. Not in that way. So pray, rise, and pray again. Let's pray together. God, we do come into this moment um, as your people, and we just want to pray the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, now we turn to a meal that nourishes us along the way, that feeds us even in the midst of trials and points us to the bread of life that our souls so deeply long for. A meal to remember how Jesus submitted to the Father for our deliverance. And through common broken bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. And through common juice, we remember his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you have those elements available to you, and you have some friends or family around, gather around those elements and partake together in remembrance of him. But before you do, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're able, partake in remembrance of him.